You could turn to Genesis 11. I changed up my sermon text to uh, include the last part of chapter 11, uh, just to provide some background information on Abraham. Actually, at this point, it's still Abram. So uh, we're going to pick up there in verse 27. Hear now the word of our God. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Ischah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morai at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are often caught up in the mindset of the world. And we are often inundated with the messages uh, that we can do whatever we want, that we can be what we want, that we can get all that we want. And it is crushing to us to discover that life isn't that way. And so I ask that you would teach us how you change lives, how you redeem lives, how you redeem even misery. And so open our eyes and our hearts to delight in what you do in what you give, and in what you promise. Set Christ in our vision this morning so that we might know His greatness, His glory, and His goodness today. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Abraham. 
We're starting to talk about the whole life of Abraham. And when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, he is the ultimate hero of faith, so to speak. When you when we talk about the hall of faith and it goes through these list of great people from the Old Testament, the primary one, the one to whom the most attention is given is Abraham. And so when we hear that, we can initially start to think that there's no way in the world we could ever measure up to Abraham. That somehow he is like the spiritually elite guy and we are basically spiritual peons. Spiritually impoverished. But you know, things aren't always what they seem. In fact, we're going to find that Abram was an awful lot like you and me in many ways. We're going to start before he was a man of faith. We're going to start with the man that God found. So that's where we're going to go. The big idea this morning is that God wants us to risk all on the redemption that he has provided for us. So let's look at this in the first part of that God calls in the midst of disobedience and disappointment. We we meet Abram here at the very beginning in the middle of his life. And what we're going to find is that in the middle of his life, thing was life wasn't working out so great for him. Okay, things were a little bit difficult for Abram. We see two cities that are fundamental and are very important in his life to this point. And the first is Ur of the Chaldeans. And if I had a map here, I'd say it was over here. Okay, just pretend that that's there. Basically, modern Babylon. Well, Babylon later on, but now modern Iran, uh, where the Persians ended up being. Uh, you know, right next to where the Persians were, rather. And... Uh, then he moved in his life to Haran, which most of us would think, okay, a move, it's not bad. I mean, my wife and I, we recently moved 2,000 miles. We stuffed everything in a pod, actually two pods, got in our brand new minivan, well, new to us, and drove across the country with our two kids, right? You know, hey, it's no big deal. It took a week, not a big deal. 2,000 miles. Well, remember, there was no pod he could call. There was no minivan he could buy at the local store. Uh, he and his family had to pack up on the camels and walk. And Haran was 555 miles northwest, which is kind of over here, and uh, which is the trade route to go this way because you didn't want to go here because that's desert. Don't want to go through the desert. Not a really good idea, right? Okay. Especially then. What is significant about Ur and Haran is that both of them were trade centers. They were among the premier, the most important trade centers in that part of the world today, of that day. If you want to translate in today, it would almost be like New York and L.A. They were that important to the economy of that part of the world at that point in time. And so they are known for wealth. They were cosmopolitan sorts of cities in the early world. But not only that, they had this thing in common as well. They were both centers for the worship of a particular God. The God Sin. Kind of a funny name, huh? That's what his name was. He was the Mesopotamian moon god. And here's the thing. Abram worshipped the moon god. We see in Joshua 24... Joshua saying this, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river, the Euphrates, and worshipped other gods. 
Joshua is acknowledging the reality that Terah was an idolater, was a heathen who worshipped other gods. And the primary god that he worshipped was this god, Sin. And it wasn't just Terah. I mean, Abram would have grown up in a house that worshipped this god. And he himself would have worshipped this god. In fact, his half-sister Sarai was most likely named for one of Sin's cohorts or brides. Not only that, but his brother's daughter, Milcah, was probably named after the title for Sin's daughter, Ishtar. No connection with the really bad movie with Dustin Hoffman. Okay? <laughs> Never saw it. Never wanted to see it. Okay? But so you get the idea here that this worship of this god, this moon god, was prevalent in Terah's family. And it didn't go just to Terah, but it was also to Abram's brothers. And part of the interesting thing here is that when it gives the list of Abram and his brothers, Abram is listed first, even though he's probably the youngest. We say that when it, when we get down to when Abram left at 75 years of old, of age, his father was 205 when he died. So Abram was born approximately when his father was 130. Okay? It's listing them not in chronological order of when they were born, but is listing them in order of importance. Abram was the most important. Nahor is going to be important later on in the story because that is where uh, a bride for his son will eventually come from the family of Nahor. And Haran is all not incredibly important just yet because he dies while they're still in Ur. So anyway, you have that. The disobedience was the worship of false gods. Abram is worshiping the creation at this point. The problem that we that was anticipated in Genesis chapter 1, which we're seeing is, is this is anticipating the problem that we're going to see when we get to Egypt, and it's Romans chapter 1, all over the place. So that is the disobedience into which God calls. But there's also disappointment because they have this little fact that's kind of dropped on us. Sarai was infertile. She hadn't had kids. She's middle-aged. At this point, uh, she would be about 65. Okay? So, I know a little bit about infertility. And I know a little bit about the pain and the sorrow that comes with that. We were really surprised when we actually had Jaden. I mean, because we walked into marriage kind of knowing, this may not happen for us. And for quite some time it didn't. And then after Jaden came, it didn't happen for us. Okay? There's sorrow there. But our sorrow was lifted. Hers had not yet been. And so she's been married probably 30, 40 years. Probably, actually, probably longer than that. But no children. No heir. And, and we can't really grasp what that is like this day and age. We feel sorrow when we don't have children often. But it was magnified for them. Uh, it was a sign, in a sense, of the curse, of a curse. So he's middle-aged. God finds him. He's worshiping creation, and he has no kids. And here's the thing. He's in the last half of his life. That should be important for us as we hear this. Because sometimes we think, I'm too old. 
I'm too old to serve God. And here's a guy who didn't even start serving God until he was old. Okay? So God doesn't call just young spring chickens. God, God calls people from all different kinds of age groups. But he calls them not because they're suited, not because they're prime candidates, but we see actually the opposite here. If we're looking for a righteous guy in the day of Abram, I can think of two people that probably would have fit. One of them is Job. Think about that for a moment. Job was a righteous man, and yet it is not Job that God comes to to make Basically, the promise of the, of redemption. It's not, it's not Job. Not only that, but there's also a guy that we're going to meet later on by the name of Melchizedek, which means the king of righteousness, who, who was in Salem, which will eventually become Jerusalem, an important place that we'll find later on, right? And yet, God doesn't call him. He doesn't give the promise to him. He gives it to this disobedient, disappointed, old guy named Abram. That should surprise. And so we discover this disobedience and idolatry and this disappointment of infertility. But God offers great promises to be received by faith. That is the second part of where this text is going to bring us. The living and true God approaches this infertile idolater. And so what we find here is a picture, even though it doesn't spell it out in quite those terms, what we find is pure and sovereign grace. Abram has done absolutely nothing to warrant this. God shows up and says, you. It's basically what happens. God makes this undeserving man great and precious promises. Remember, we talked about from Genesis chapter 3, the the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? Well, basically, what's going on here is the seed of of the woman is going to come through the line of Abram. That's the big picture that we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's kind of look at some of these blessings. And what we're going to find is that there are three blessings, there's a command in the middle, and then there's three more blessings. So there's six promises, rather, that God gives. And the first of these promises is that he is going to make this infertile guy, into a great nation. This means that this 75-year-old man is going to have children, and in particular, a son. But think about that. It's not just you're going to have a family. You're going to have a great family. Okay, That's not the idea. It's a great nation. So God is exposing this long-range plan that he has that is going to begin with this man named Abram. He will not see the fulfillment of all of these promises. There is no way that he will see the fact that God is going to make a great nation out of him in this earthly life. The promise extends far beyond his lifetime. Let's keep that in mind. Not only that, but he says, I will give you a great blessing. God is going to empower Abram for success for fertility, which is going to be really important with the the fulfillment of the rest of the promises, and more. That word that we find in Genesis 1 that uh, that speaks of empowerment to fulfill the, the commands and call of God, that is going to be given to Abram. And then comes this, a great name. 
Up to this point, no one had probably even cared who Abram was. He's going to become one of the most famous people, not just of his day, but of all time. And no one ever would have picked that when he's 75. He said, oh, they're going to remember him. No, not at all. Remember, last week we talked about the people in Babel and how they tried to make a name for themselves. Their pride was at work. But we see something very different here is that God is going to make Abram's name great. Abram is not going to make his name great. It's not about who Abram is or who he makes himself to be. It is who God will make him to be. And because of his, him being tied to these incredible promises and covenant with God. That's what it's going to be about. God will give him this great reputation. God is going to change his status. And in fact, later on we'll see God will give him a new name. Better than the old name. But we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves this morning. The second section of blessing starts with this, or of promise, that I will bless those who bless you. Meaning that those who help Abram are going to receive God's help. Because they have aligned himself with Abram and therefore they are aligning themselves with God himself. The flip side of that is the, is the second promise that I will curse those who curse you. God is saying, I am going to hinder those who look and tr- upon you lightly or treat you lightly. This is the promise that he makes to Abram. And then there comes this incredible promise that of basically of universal blessing. Now, don't misunderstand when I say universal. Not, I don't mean each and every human being who ever lived and ever, you know, okay? But it says all nations. It's not going to be limited to a, a small group of people in an isolated place, but it's going to expand and explode to cover the entire earth. All nations will share in this blessing. Not just the great nation of which he is going to be the father. Again, long-range plan. Long-range promise that includes this promise of redemption. So what's supposed to happen with these promises that God lays out before this man, Abram? Well, these promises were meant to be received by faith. That Abram was to say, okay, (laughs) I believe you'll do this. And because you, I believe you will do this, I'm going to do some things. Okay? They were to, they were to shape his faith and his life. And by shaping his faith, I mean that he's going to believe that God will accomplish these specific things and therefore he lives in light of them. And when life is not making sense, he goes back to the promises and says, okay, I don't see this happening yet, but guess what? I'm going to continue to trust you to accomplish what you have told me you're going to do. I am going to believe that you are great enough and good enough to do exactly what you told me you would do. His faith is not shaped by his own understanding. His faith is not shaped by his wishful thinking. His faith is shaped by who God reveals himself to be to him. By the promises that he makes. That God is good. That God is powerful. That God redeems. 
okay? That God would do this. And so what we see is that in, 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 even in this passage, and we're going to get to this in a little bit, but the faith and the promises will begin to produce obedience to the related commands. John Piper talks about this in a whole book called Future Grace. That when, when we obey, we do this out of faith. And we do it precisely because God has made promises to us. And we're trying to live in light of those promises. Okay? But let's take a step back for a moment and, and see what Scripture does with these promises. Initially, some of them are fulfilled in Abram. Okay? We, we see that God gives him offspring. We see that God gives him a great name. We see that God blessed him and empowered him to, to fulfill that which he commands him to do. We also see that he blesses those who bless Abram. We see that he curses those who cursed him. And so some of this is initially fulfilled in the life of Abram, but it is passed on. He gives the promise to Isaac. And then Isaac gives the promise not to Esau, but he gives it to Jacob. And eventually it explodes with Jacob and his 12 sons. And there you have the nation. And so the, the promise is given to Israel. And they received many of these promises were fulfilled in them. Okay? But the ultimate fulfillment was Jesus. We see that in Galatians because it says, not to offsprings, but to offspring. This is part of Paul's argument to the Galatians, meaning that there was, it's going to be fulfilled primarily in one person, and that person is the Messiah, and that Messiah is Jesus, the anointed one, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and blood. And so it is Jesus who fulfills all of these promises, which is exactly what Matthew wants us to think in the very first verse of his gospel. He makes the point that Jesus was the son of Abram, Abraham and the son of David and is the fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham and the fulfillment of the covenant to David and that those two ideas must shape how we look at Matthew's gospel and indeed, you start to think about how it all fits with that idea. But it's not just to Christ. But we see that all those who are united to Christ by faith are also, we receive, their heirs of the promise, just as it talks about in Galatians. And so in, in a sense, these promises are meant to shape how you and I live. So it's not just, oh, that's nice for that Abraham guy, or, oh, okay, it's about Jesus, so it's okay for him but they're also meant to shape how we live. They're to shape our faith and the choices that we make. So God offered this promise of redemption for Abraham and the world through him. Okay. Ah, well. One of those things you think, oh, I forgot to say something, but... Apparently not all that important at this point. Faith is expressed by obedience. Oh, sorry, faith expressed by obedience brings blessings to others. There's something that's important here that sometimes we don't think about. And that is that before Abraham, Abram could receive these promises, there was an important condition. 
Because this all starts with a command. Go. What if Abram didn't go? What if he didn't leave Ur? What if he didn't leave the gods of his father? We have to reckon with that reality. Abram was commanded to leave sin, capital S, and any other gods he may have worshipped. He was also to leave the prosperity of Ur for, God didn't tell him yet. How's that for risk? I want you to leave one of the most prosperous places on the face of the earth, and I'm not going to tell you where I want you to go yet. But I'll tell you when you get there. There is a degree of uncertainty, not from God's perspective, because he ordains everything that comes to pass, but from our perspective, because he hasn't told us everything he has ordained. But as we sang a few moments ago, we know that whatever he has ordained is right. Okay, But still, we live sort of in that in-between uncertainty kind of there. And the, the reality is that God always doesn't always give you the plan. He says, trust me. And when each step comes up, there'll be road. But what's important is the plan almost in some ways is basically trust and obey. Do what I tell you to do. The walk of faith is not just I trust you, but also I trust you enough to step out in the direction you're telling me to step out in. We see that with kids all the time. Sorry, children. I want to plug my children's ears. But, you know, even yesterday, okay, we went, we got a dog. Okay? And before we showed up at the uh, animal control center, we had been the day before, and my daughter wanted one dog. And my wife wanted a different dog. Okay? If you've never been there, folks, <laughs> I was in the Catch-22. I was thinking, who do I please? Do I please my little girl? Do I please the woman who's going to be with me the rest of my life? Um, no easy solution to this situation. So, you know, when we get out, we're getting out of the minivan, I go, let's pray. <laughs> okay, we gotta pray. And I said, Lord, find the dog that, help us to, to recognize the dog that's right for us and to help us to be in one accord, to be in agreement on this. And that's precisely what happened over the course of the next hour and a half, is that we found a dog that wasn't one of the dogs that we thought it was going to be. It was a dog that I really didn't even want to look at. And yet, that's the dog that seemed to be right for us, and we all could agree. But I remember the conversation, which is my point here, with the kids. Do you trust Dad to do good for you? 
That was the bottom line. That's what's behind all of our clamoring, our whining towards God. We don't trust Him to do good to us. Abraham was being called to risk everything on the goodness and the power of God. A God that he had just met. Okay? Something amazing happened. His extended family was converted too. Genesis 31. I read from Joshua before, but Genesis 31 says that, May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. Abram, Nahor, and Terah all converted from worship of the God's sin to the worship of the Lord. Pretty amazing when you think about it. And so we're not sure exactly why Terah decided to go to Haran, aside from that was the trade route, but Haran decided to go too, and Lot decided to go. But after his father's death in Haran, he leaves. And there's a strange phrase that the Scripture uses, with the people they acquired. And you probably should scratch your head at that, because it doesn't use the word for slaves. It doesn't use the word for servants. What does it mean that they acquired these people? Could it be that these were more converts who decided to jump on the Abram train? I've got a friend in prison who talks about um, being on the mercy train because he can't earn any money, but he is invested in stocks, and he's in his, his stocks in, in this climate make money. And he says, it's Jesus. <laughs> I'm on the mercy train. Do you want to be on the mercy train, Steve? And that's it. These people are, are saying they want to be, they're, they're blessing Abram, and they're going to be blessed with Abram. Okay, it's part of this promise. Uh, and this really foreshadows what we see in the Exodus. Because it wasn't just the Israelites who left Egypt. There are a bunch of others who said, your God is awesome. To be able to deliver you out of the hands of Pharaoh? I'm going with you. And so there were Gentiles who went out of Egypt with the Jews. This foreshadows what we see in Acts chapter 2 and the rest of Acts as all these Gentiles jump onto basically a Jewish religion. I mean, seriously now. You're a sophisticated Gentile, right? You've got all your gods. Why would you want to worship a Jewish carpenter? Really? who they claim came to life after he was crucified as a criminal. Not a really attractive religion when you, when you think about it in those terms. And yet, 
what we see is that all these Gentiles jumped onto the mercy train, so to speak, the promise that was given to Abram and was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what we find is that from Haran, Abram travels south three to four hundred more miles. Again, remembering cars hadn't been invented in the interim. There was no pod to pick up his stuff. With all of the possessions, everything that he gained, God blessing him in Haran, all that stuff going three to four hundred miles south into Canaan, it's sort of like leaving New York or L.A. for Iowa or Montana or Winter Haven, Florida. I don't know. Not spectacular, not really the place you want to go when you've been in such cosmopolitan, exciting places as those. Okay? And then there's this, there's this, let's get back to that second command that's in the midst of the promises, the one that separates the first three from the, the, the last three. And you will be a blessing really has the force of a command. When you look at the, the grammatical structure. Essentially, this means that the blessing was not to stop with Abram. He was not to just soak up all the goodness of God and keep it to himself. He wasn't to be uh, like a big dragon hoarding all the treasure. It was, he was meant to be basically a... I don't want to say this. I don't want to sound like some prosperity gospel guy. You know me better than that, right? Okay. I'm banking on that at this moment, that you know I'm not a prosperity gospel guy. But basically a, a distributor of the blessing beyond himself. Okay, this is this is one of the key passages when we, when people start talking about missional ministry. Okay, that the blessing didn't stop with Abram, but it was meant to be through him to others, and not just in that ultimate Jesus redemption aspect, but beyond. So there's a missional quality to these promises. They're meant to not stop with us who have received this, but they're to expand outward. And what we see Abraham Abraham doing when he goes into Canaan is very interesting, is he begins to build altars. And not just in random places, but specifically in cultic centers, like the, the tree of Mamre. That was a cultic center of the Canaanites. They liked big trees because just like the ziggurats that go up into the heavens, they viewed big trees as reaching up into the heavens and they often built altars there and offered sacrifices there. He doesn't use their altar. He's not being a synchronist. He's building his own altar and he's calling upon the name of the Lord in doing so. So what is part of what is going on is that Abram is beginning to spread the message of faith in Yahweh, the Creator and the Redeemer. Here's the rub. The disappointment still is there. Has he had a child yet? No. And then we have these people called the Canaanites, which came, we saw, from a very bad place. <laughs> they're, they're the descendants of Ham. Okay, so they're not good. You're meant to kind of, that bad music goes, in the, you know, 
when Darth Vader shows up, you know, the music comes up, that kind of thing here. Bad guys, music plays. This is not good. Abram is in enemy territory. And he's still wrestling with disappointment. So let's not think that, oh, he became a believer and everything was magically transformed and everything was awesome and everything went his way and it was just so good. He is surrounded by Canaanite idolaters. And just like Abram, we are going to experience obstacles in the life of faith. It's not going to go quickly or easily. Oh, my. The time, on the other hand, has gone quickly and easily. Um, and what we're going to see is that just like him, we're going to falter. But in the midst of the wait for the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises, um, we cling to Christ and the promises. And they function as a safety net for us. While we were on vacation, we went to the Enchanted Rainforest. Uh, if you read my blog, you saw something about that. And one of the things they had, they had a little circus show. And one of the acts that, that got shortened due to rain, hence the rainforest aspect of this, uh, was a trapeze act. You can't have the joy of doing the act if you don't let go of the trapeze. I guess what I'm saying is, you don't have the, you don't experience the joy of what it means to be satisfied in Christ if you don't let go of your prior life and everything else that you hung on to. That's why I say, from our side of it, there is risk. God's side, no risk. But our side, we're taking a chance and throwing our lot in with Jesus. But you can't cling to the old life too. That's part of that go thing. Abram couldn't cling to his old life and walk with the Lord. He had to let go of one to go with the other. And I don't like heights, so I wouldn't be a trapeze artist, but here's the good thing. That if they stuck me up there and said, that I had to do this or something bad would happen to me, I would know one thing, that there was a safety net. That I could let go of the trapeze, hoping that there would be someone's hands on the other end to grab me, knowing that there was a safety net. Christ and the promises of the Gospel are the safety net. We can let go because the other song we sang this morning, Amazing Grace, His Word promises good to me. We can let go, we can risk because of what He has promised and how He has already begun to fulfill those promises in Jesus Christ. So, anyway, I feel like I've said more than I need to say. So the call to faith is not one of just adding Jesus to your life as it presently exists. God enters your life to deal with your disobedience and to deal with your disappointments with a promise of redemption. And it includes this call to leave your old life behind and begin again. The ultimate destination is known, but there's plenty on the trip that's not known. And here's the question. 
will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, our lives, uh, like Abram's, were marked by disappointment and disobedience. And we thank You that there is one who redeems us from both sin and misery. And that one is Jesus. And so we ask that You would teach us how to live by faith, to cling to those promises, and to cling to Jesus Himself in the midst of our disobedience and in the midst of our disappointment. Help us to know that this really isn't about us, but it is really about Jesus. And we ask this in His name. Amen.